0: Grammar Girl here. The full name of this podcast is Grammar Girl's Quick and Dirty Tips for Better Writing. And part of better writing is making sure your sources are credible. So this week, we're going to look at a particularly well-done grammar hoax and see how you could have avoided falling for it. About six weeks ago, a professor of English and Linguistics at the University of Illinois named Dennis Barron posted an article on his university-hosted blog that at first glance looked like a press release about a scientific study showing that grammar sticklers have obsessive-compulsive disorder. The article begins, quote, "'It used to be we thought that people who went around correcting other people's grammar were just plain annoying. Now there's evidence they're actually ill.' suffering from a type of obsessive-compulsive disorder slash oppositional defiant disorder, OCD slash ODD. Researchers are calling it grammatical pedantry syndrome, or GPS. It goes on to talk about a real gene known to be involved in language processing or development, FOXP2. It shows supposed brain scans comparing the different responses of people with and without the made-up FOXP2 variant and it even goes so far as to include a properly formatted citation to the fictitious Journal of Syntactic Cognition in which Barron imagines the article would have been published. What a delicious story that would have been if it were true. And if you only read the headline, the first paragraph or two, and glanced at the rest, you could be forgiven for believing it was true. I first became aware of the article when it was forwarded to me by someone on Twitter who indeed thought it was real. As I read the whole thing, though, I became more and more suspicious. My first clue was that one of the researchers was named maledict. I happened to know that this is an archaic word that means to curse, and I thought it was an oddly coincidental name for a language researcher. However, many a dentist is named Dr. Tooth, so I wasn't completely thrown. In retrospect, the other researcher's name was also suspicious, but I didn't realize it at the time. It looks Asian, high-ding-low, but without pronouncing it out loud, I didn't immediately realize that phonetically it was hiding low, as in hiding Easter eggs for the kids. It wasn't until the fifth paragraph, far below the fold, that I read the sentence that really set off alarm bells, a sentence that included a quotation from the supposed Dr. Maledict that read, quote, we don't know what this data means. And then he added, Or is it what these data mean? Unquote. That's a particularly jocular quotation for a scientist. Still, I was finding myself wanting to believe the story was true because it would be fantastic to be able to talk about it in interviews. So I read on, hoping against all my instincts that it was real. But after a few more quotations that seemed a bit too cute, and the introduction of another commenter named Bob Loth the name of a prescriptivist writer from the 1700s who's well known to linguists, I was 95% sure it was a hoax. At that point, I did a Google search for the Journal of Syntactic Cognition and for Dr. Lan Maledict. I didn't get any hits for either of them, and I became 99% sure it was a hoax. I wrote back to the person who'd sent me the link in the first place and asked if it was a joke. Tellingly, he responded, quote, I didn't look very closely— I assumed it was legit because it came to my inbox through the Writing Program Administration List serve. Unquote. And this brings me to the first reason this was a particularly believable hoax it came from a credible source. Typically, I advise people to consider the credibility of a source. For example, the Stanford Cancer Center website is more credible than Aunt Mary's cancer page hosted on Blogger. In this case, however, that advice wouldn't have helped. Dr. Barron is a real professor at the University of Illinois. The article is hosted on the university's site with an illinois.edu address. Glancing at his other posts seems to indicate that he has a fondness for the odd and the funny, but his site as a whole doesn't appear to be devoted to satire—unless I'm really missing the joke. And as I said, the person who sent it to me assumed it was true because it came over his writing program listserv. Assessing the credibility of your source is usually a good place to start, but you can't be certain something is true just because it's from a credible source or got passed on to you by someone you trust. Another way to check a site's credibility is to see who else is linking to it. You can search for this at Google by typing the word link, followed by a colon, and the URL of the page you want to check. Doing this kind of search on Barron's post doesn't turn up a lot, which can be a hint that it's not credible. However, it's important not to read too much into skimpy results. If you were posting a real press release that was circulated prominently, there may be no reason for other sites to link to his because they could find the release elsewhere. On the other hand, if you do this kind of search and find a lot of credible sources linking to your page, it's a vote of confidence for the material. Again, imagine our two cancer sites. You'd probably find a lot of credible sites linking to the Stanford Cancer Center, and maybe all you'd find linking to Aunt Mary's cancer page is obscure forum posts or sites that are selling nutritional supplements. This leads me to another piece of advice that I usually give, but that wouldn't have been helpful in this case. Ask whether they're selling something. People can have a sales business and still be truthful, but you should always be especially skeptical of information on a website that's trying to sell you something. If they're selling aloe juice on the site, don't let them be your only source of information about aloe juice. But in this case, Barron wasn't selling a cure for grammatical pedantry syndrome. He was just having some fun. Another reason this was a particularly good hoax was because it included scientific images in a citation. The brain scans seemed pretty convincing. They even had a note that they were quote, used by permission, unquote, from the fake journal, but they were actually just lifted from a different journal. And thanks to Ben Zimmer for pointing me to the original source of the images. The story actually had a full citation from the fake Journal of Syntactic Cognition, with everything you'd expect in a real citation, including volume, issue, and page numbers. A reader who was scanning the article and not familiar with the names of the journals in this field could easily be lulled into gullibility. The citation must be real, otherwise why would Barron include it? It's like a resume with fake credentials. You think, well, he wouldn't put it on there if it weren't real because I could go check. So sometimes you don't bother checking. I don't remember the specifics of this example, but I do have a vague recollection of a book that included a lot of footnotes that turned out to not support the points the author was making. They were real sources, but their information was taken out of context. If you need to be sure information is true, not only check whether the source actually exists, but also check to be sure it says what the writer's claiming it says. Once things start getting forwarded around, they can take on a life of their own. I received another message a couple of weeks ago from someone who thought this grammar OCD story was true. If you receive something fishy from a well-meaning friend, another easy thing you can do before forwarding it to others is to check the website Snopes, S-N-O-P-E-S, which specializes in debunking hoaxes, myths, rumors, and urban legends. This particular story isn't on Snopes yet, but many fake stories that get passed around by email are. Check Snopes to keep yourself from looking stupid by forwarding something that isn't true. One thing you'll notice about a lot of things like this that turn out not to be true is that they play on widespread fears, like a lot of urban legends about crimes that never happened. Or they have just enough plausibility to make you believe them. At some level, you want to believe them. I mean, those grammar sticklers do seem a little obsessive at times, don't they? It can be annoying when someone corrects your grammar and you might get a little joy next time from pointing out that they have a mental condition, right? When you want to believe something is true, that's the time when you have to recognize that you're susceptible to being tricked and you have to dig even deeper. To be a good writer, you have to be sure your sources are real and correct. For the app subscribers, I know this is supposed to be an ad-free show, but I ended up putting so much into the ad that relates to the podcast, I felt like I'd be shortchanging you if I left it out. So, please ignore and forgive the ad and listen for the fascinating tidbit about Noah Webster. Thanks again to Audible for sponsoring the podcast. The audiobook I started listening to last night is The Forgotten Founding Father, Noah Webster's Obsession and the Creation of an American Culture. And in a strange coincidence, since I started working on this Grammar Girl podcast almost a month ago, the author, Joshua Kendall, says that Noah Webster suffered from obsessive compulsive personality disorder, and that those characteristics are what made him able to focus so diligently on his dictionary for more than 30 years. So, although the story about grammar sticklers in general having OCD was just a joke, apparently America's first dictionary maker had a related condition, OCPD. And I figured that given the nature of this episode, I'd better actually check some additional sources and not rely on just this one book, since it seems almost too good to be true. First, I found two separate articles in Psychology Today detailing Webster's condition. Now both articles were written by Kendall, so they aren't exactly independent evidence. But two articles being published a few years apart in such a well-known magazine gave me some confidence that it's true. If they'd gotten complaints that it wasn't true after the first article, they probably wouldn't have let him publish the second article. Kendall is also given talks at conferences about Webster's personality disorder and its helpfulness in lexicography. He had previously written a biography of the man who wrote Rogers Thesaurus, and his bio says he received two awards for excellence in reporting on psychiatry. But it's important to note that although Kendall presumes that Webster had OCPD, in an interview, he seems to make it clear that this is just speculation on his part. He's a journalist, and he says, quote, A modern-day psychologist might be inclined to diagnose him, Webster, with obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, unquote. The might-be-inclined-to qualifier suggests to me that no modern-day psychologist has actually addressed the issue by directly going through Webster's history and papers. I didn't come across an academic article on Webster's condition. On the other hand, you should also never take an offhand comment in an interview as fact either. People misspeak or are misquoted all the time. Still, based on the author's credibility and the multiple places he's raised the idea, I'm inclined to believe he's right and that Webster had OCPD. But as I said in the podcast, if something seems too good to be true, it's always good to dig a little deeper and not just take it on faith. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find a transcript of this podcast and hundreds of other articles at quickanddirtytips.com. That's all. Thanks for listening. There's a moment you realize you're ready for what's next in your career. Maybe it's when you're trying a new scone recipe and think, I could open a cafe.